Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the New Books Network, um, our podcast. We reached a million downloads last month, so we'd like to just extend a quick thank you to all of the listeners for supporting us through everything and hope that we have provided you with some intellectual company in the midst of all that's going on. Today, I am very excited to welcome um, the author of a, of a book that I find both very relevant uh, and very timely, even though it was published in 2018. So I'm excited to bring it to you today. And the name of the book is Leadership Through the Lens, Interrogating Production, Presentation, and Power by Krishima R. Murray, who is the editor of the book. And of course, there were several contributing authors that couldn't be with us today. So Dr. Murray is going to be representing them. And this book um, really brings together, I think, the best of what communication studies has to offer. It has a little bit of media for some people. It has a little bit of language. It looks at issues of identity, race, representation, all under this idea of how does television teach us, for better or for worse, to think about leadership, what leadership does, what leadership should be doing, how is it influenced behind the scenes, in front of the camera, all through this idea of the lens, right? So the, the television lens and also the, 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 the theory and communication lens as, a, as an approach. So it's a wonderful book, got lots of different stuff and certainly something that I'm excited to bring to the listeners of New Books Network. And Dr. Murray's here with us. Dr. Murray, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Well, we'd love to hear more about um, yourself, of course, and how the book came to be and just some of the highlights of the project for those listening at home that haven't had a chance to read it yet. Okay, great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am always extremely excited to share my academic endeavors with um, people outside of my students and outside of my colleagues um, in the academy. So thank you for this opportunity. And I'm excited for the listeners to have this opportunity to hear a little bit more about this work. So um, just a little bit about myself. I am an associate professor of corporate communication. I identify as a scholar activist teacher. I am a founding fellow for the Center for Critical Race Studies. And so most of my work in the academy, as well as my activist work outside of the academy, looks at the lived experiences of Black women in particular in leadership roles. And so that was the the premise behind this text um, of this book. But I also am just more so intrigued with the way that we understand and learn about our lives and ourselves through media. And so that's that's where the inspiration in some ways for the book came about. Wonderful. And you use that term scholar activist, which is something I think we've heard inside the academy. But a lot of our listeners in New Books Network are not academic. So um, could you just tell them a little bit about, I think for a lot of people, they just assume scholar and activist just kind of go together. But it actually is a relatively brave and rare choice for someone to take on that role and add that hyphen. So do you want to maybe talk just a little bit about what that means so everyone at home knows? Yes, I, I'm happy to shed more light on scholar activists. It's a heavy title for, for the listeners out there. Mm-hmm. Scholar mm-hmm. activists, it is extremely heavy. It's a burden that I carry graciously 
because I think that as an academic, many of us do and engage in such profound work that rarely leaves the ivory tower. And even within the ivory tower, we are all sectioned off in our various areas of research and um, and practice. And so I believe that as a scholar, I would be doing my, my work, my subjects, the discipline, um, being a Black woman, a disservice if I did not share with others what I am doing, what I am working on. And in many ways, and actually in all ways, my scholarship guides my activism, right? So I am more equipped to understand the lived experiences of individuals that I am studying. I am more equipped as a scholar to articulate what's happening in the world and how we can use what we learn as communication scholars to help potentially shift the narratives that we are experiencing in our everyday lives. Yeah. And and I thank you so much for doing that work. I have a lot of admiration for scholar activists. And I found it really interesting, especially to knowing about your activist work, that, that this is a book about leadership uh, and you come from a field of corporate communication, because I think a lot of people often think that activism and like corporate leadership kind of work differently. But I think you think of them as working very much together, which is a little bit about what your book's about. So do you want to um, maybe tell us how activism and, and your role in corporate communication as an academic kind of got you invested in leadership and then maybe transition into some of the highlights of what the book has to t- has to say about how we think about leadership? Yes, no, um, no problem. So when we think about where do we spend the majority of our time, it's in the workplace, right? So we, it's, we say it's 40 hours a week, but many of us know, unfortunately, the burden of workforce labor. We are engaged in work longer than 40 hours a week. And especially during this period where we are experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic, our work does, has, is not leaving us. We, you know, many people have transitioned their bedrooms or their kitchen tables. And so your work is now ingrained in your home. And so you cannot separate from what's happening. We also have to think that much of our work guides our home life and vice versa. So when we think about the way that we structure and organize our life, it's it's very similar to how we structured and organized our field of um, of work and what we decided that we would like to pursue as far as our career. And so I believe that that is very much important when we look at organization organizations from an activist standpoint. When we think about, I guess, when COVID-19 first um when people first started taking this virus seriously, one of the places where many of us look to were our organizational leaders, right? It's like we're waiting for Marriott to make a decision or if, uh, <laughs> I, I live in Houston, Texas. And so one of the things that I love about Houston, Texas is the month of March. March is rodeo season and we celebrate our cowboys, um, our cowgirls, and everything that's associated with uh, the rodeo for a full 31 days. And actually, it's it's more like 50 days because we have events that take place in February. But I would say here in my community, many people did not take this virus seriously until rodeo leadership decided to cancel 
the rodeo. And so that is very much how this organization has so much power. Millions of dollars are chunked into the city of Houston every single year just from the rodeo. Many of the vendors make their entire um, yearly living from this one event. And they survive for 365 days based solely on the events of the rodeo. And so canceling that one event, this one organization that has this much power to change the narrative, people started taking this virus seriously. And that's just one event in a, in, in one state. And so we also think about how we look to our government and the way that they act or do not act when it comes to um, particular events. And, and as I stated earlier, we think about, I know my inbox, my email inbox was flooded with emails from CEOs letting us know that, you know, we're in this together and we care about you. And so the way that our lives are, are structured, they're organized through our workplace and these organizations that we support or do not support. And so that's important. Um, the book came about, oh, let's see if it was published in 2018. It had to be 2016. I was attending a communication studies conference, Western States, and I decided I Western States has an organizational communication division, and I wanted to put together a panel of scholars to understand how do we learn about our workplace lives through the media. I'm sure many of us, we can think about our favorite television shows that have guided our lives or that we look to for comfort or for a greater understanding. And I thought about how do we learn about organizations through the media? When I first began teaching organizational communication about 10, 12 years ago, one of my go-to television shows for um, examples was The Office. And I feel like many of my students at the time, and, and still to this day, they learned about organizational life through The Office, or we can think now about parks and recreation. Or for me growing up, and I, and I say this in my chapter, I learned about and was inspired to become a scholar from watching A Different World. And so we, <laughs> and so we, we learn that. about life and how to do life through the media. And so I approached, um, I put a call out, approached some colleagues. We put together this uh, session for Western states. And it was probably one of, to, to date, one of the best panels that I've served on. We just, we had a lot of great conversations and over half of the scholars that participated in that panel contributed to this book. And so I am so very thankful that they believed in me for guiding them not only through that panel, but to create this um, this edited collection that I use in my classes and they um, use in their classes. And, and we use it's just a way to, you know, still be um, together. Yeah, well, it's it's a wonderful collection. I mean, you can really tell how much work you did to edit it, so that it, it felt um, it felt connected, but that every every chapter I keep wanting to say article every chapter felt like the author's chapter. And actually, in the book, I, I don't know if this was your idea or if it came naturally from the submissions, but you wind up organizing the book into three parts. So um, you have production being part one, presentation being part two, and power being part three. And that first part about production 
is sort of almost like about like a little bit of like a media economy, kind of how things behind the scenes are influencing what makes it across to the viewer. And you and you write a piece for this section on Shondaland that I'd love to hear more about. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about the um, the piece about leadership hiding in plain sight and teaching leadership through television. Okay. So um, my favorite, <laughs> of course, it's my favorite chapter is the one that I wrote. Sure. Thank, thank God it's Thursday, the power of Shondaland gender and leadership. And so for me as a black woman scholar, I am so thankful for Shonda Rhimes and um, Shonda Land is actually the name of Shonda Rhimes production company and what she has meant to television in particular, um, the um, television station ABC and more importantly, Thursday night television, what she has meant for that night of television and more so what she's meant for the telling of stories about black women. Right. So, um, during when the, when the book came out, we were still talking about scandal, which is no longer on it at the moment. And then, um, the last episode of how to get away with murder aired two weeks ago at the time of this taping. And so I just think about how Shonda Rhimes has, allow for the stories of many um, black and brown women to be shared on television. There is uh, she she's also responsible for the show, The Practice. And I know most of my friends favorite episode, I mean, favorite television show, uh, Grey's Anatomy. And so Shonda, Lime, Shonda Rhimes has created so many stories about life in the um, hospital, life in the courtroom, life in government. And I'm just very much appreciative of those stories and those experiences that she shares. And so in this chapter, I talk a little bit about my experience growing up as a a young black girl watching these images of black women and black girls on television and how important representation is. And so for me, Shonda Rhimes not only represents these stories that we see in front of the lens, but more so the power of her leadership behind the lens, right? And so for me, that's that's been very important. Were you about to say something? Yeah, I was I was just gonna sorry, I was just gonna add really quickly that this was a nice chapter because I think so often in media studies, especially, we're so used to hearing about how everything behind the lens is so awful. Right. <laughs> so it was right. very cool to see how how um, Shonda Rhimes as leadership in like kind of the real world to just kind of make a convenient binary there has translated into really transformative media for parts of, of the population. And in particular, I loved you talking about Olivia Pope. So Olivia Pope is a character from scandal created by Shonda Rhimes because people, people watching TV don't relate to Shonda Rhimes as Shonda Rhimes, right? They relate to Shonda Rhimes. They learn from Shonda Rhimes as a leader through the leader characters that Shonda Rhimes gives to us. Correct. And the characters that she creates, there's a there's a line in the, um, that I would like to, to read for a second. It says a leader in every word rhymes. Television shows explore topics such as homosexuality, abortion, interracial relationships, infidelity, police brutality, rape, 
HIV, AIDS. As a writer and a producer, Rhymes controls multiple narratives about women and leadership, narratives that we rarely see on the screen in such a profound way. Never before have television viewers experienced this cultural phenomena of care and diversity before Shonda Rhimes. Yeah, that was an awesome part. I had that highlighted myself. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah. So do you want to say a little bit about Olivia Pope as a character uh, or do you want to move on? Um, I can talk about Olivia. What, 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 what would you like to know? What would well, you like to share? Well, you sort yeah, you sort of talk about right, you already mentioned your experience growing up. And of course, I mean, and I'm not speaking for you. This is mentioned in the book that you don't have a lot of Olivia Pope's when you're a kid. Right. Right. And then you grow up and there's Grey's Anatomy, which is which is great. Shonda Rhimes invented a lot of great characters. But of course, you know, white women are still at the forefront of that show, although certainly we're starting to see some pushing on that representation. And then all of a sudden you talk about how there was this night where Grey's Anatomy is wrapping up. You're watching TV and you uh, suddenly this scandal show comes on and there's Olivia Pope and she is this complex. And I think I think that's kind of what I want you to talk about is that Olivia Pope is complex and and we're very used, I, I think, to seeing people expanding who gets to be on TV, but they're often very one dimensional characters. Right. Whereas you talk about Olivia Pope as being really layered. So I think that's kind of the piece. If you want to speak to that, I'd love to hear more about for the audience who hasn't read the book. Okay. So I would like to say one, one of the things I love about Shonda Rhimes is that Olivia Pope is based off of real life Judy A. Smith. Um, Judy Smith is a crisis manager. She's a lawyer. She's an author. And so this character that we see on television handling these scandals, it's based off of a black woman. And so that's the first part of this story that I truly appreciate is that I am getting a chance to myself as well as all the viewers. We're getting a chance to see this black woman's life portrayed on television. Now, obviously I remember in like the first two or three seasons where when, you know, whenever Judy Smith was interviewed and she worked for the first Bush campaign, she talks about, you know, no, there was never an affair with the president or, you know, some of the things that happen in terms of Olivia Pope's, the complexities of her life. That was not an accurate reflection of Judy Smith's life. But the cases that she worked on, how she handled these uh, public relations crises, they were important. And so for me, as um, as I think about young women, young girls that are watching this show, they have another lens to look at career wise. Because when you ask a little girl, what does she want to be when she grows up? Many people say, oh, I just want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or a teacher, right? Because that's what we see. But rarely are we in position to see, view, understand that there are multiple careers that are out there and available for our young girls and boys to actually venture into. And so that that's one of the reasons why I appreciated Olivia Pope. I feel like you asked me something else and I did not answer the question. Did No, no. Yeah, no. I, I think I think part of my interest was in what is it about Olivia Pope that sort of is so complex? And I think the fact she's based on a real person who has to navigate some of these things is yeah. part of why Shonda Rams is able to create such a robust character. Right. And I and I like the fact that she isn't like the characters that I that I watched growing up. Right. Like she's right. not a Claire Huxtable, like um, Olivia Pope. She wasn't married. She didn't have kids. Right. She's not like a Vivian. Um, 
uh, via from yeah, the right fresh prince, prince, prince yeah. bel air she is her own unique individual character and she does show the complexities of being a woman and uh-huh. being a single woman and being a single successful woman yeah and what i really love about that show right so because part of what was complex about that show is that olivia pope eventually right falls in love with the white president right and so it gets a lot of criticism for that move. And then Shonda Rhimes says, right, but this is what probably would happen in this situation. And the show is self-aware that that stereotype is an allure, even if we don't necessarily want it to be there. So it treats it as a stereotype at the same time that it becomes part of the plot of the show. Instead of yeah. it just hap- instead of it just happening with no commentary or the obvious predictable move, which is to do something safe and give Olivia Pope a black partner. Yes. Right, because you're you're going to lose either way. So at least the show takes an opportunity to look at sort of the complexities of race and gender and power and privilege and stereotype and how that has to be navigated by every woman. And right, exactly. Otherwise, you just turn into Claire Huxtable and you're very one dimensional. Right. I, yeah. I, I couldn't have said that better myself, even though I would like to push back. And I don't think that Claire Huxtable was That's very one dimensional. Yeah, she was. You're right. You're right. I shouldn't have said that. I th- yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're yeah. right. Um, yeah, no, that's right. I think, um, I think, she, I think for what she, right, right in the eighties, she was rat. I mean, in some ways are very radical as a, yeah. as a leader, right? I guess I'm, I'm being unfair to, to a show that's what, 20 years old now at this point. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years old. Yeah, right, um, right. That's fair. That's fair. And I wouldn't even say Claire Huxtable was radical. She just provided what I would say white America an opportunity mm-hmm. to see the way that black people were already living. Right. So, right. right. The fact that, you know, their their children went to Yale and Harvard and um, uh, Hillman College. So we right. see the complexities of a mother working outside of the home, the father, even though he's a physician, his practice is inside of the home. I think what that show did for white America was to, in some ways, provide a safety, which is one of my criticisms about the ah, show, mm-hmm. but it also provided people with an opportunity to see the way that black people were, were living. Like everybody, you know, we, we saw the Jeffersons in the seventies, but that was also um, in contrast to the good times. Right. So we get a right, chance to right, see right. different black families and which I, was very important for, for people. Yeah, that's totally fair. And th- this is one of the things I love about this book is I'm, is I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, comparison and contrasting of all the ways leadership and all the ways that race get portrayed on different television shows. And so even though it's easy to say, oh, it's just TV, by the time you finish this book, there's no way it's just TV anymore. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and speaking of being educated, because I'm currently getting a lot of education, which I appreciate, your first chapter actually talks about this really fascinating classroom study uh, Mm -hmm. by, I I hope I pronounce names right here, Gail Fairhurst and Joseph Daye. Yeah. 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 Um, And they, and they essentially pick these very different representations of leadership, right? They do like a a Ted, a TEDx about a video of a white guy dancing at a festival and they pick all these sister, sister act, or they pick these very divergent senses of leadership and they give them to a class and they say, what is leadership? And they look at how those definitions that emerge uh, have these uh, class, race, gender connotations built into them. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that chapter? 
Um, sure. So this was one of, when I put the call out, this chapter, and, and Dr. Fairhurst is one of the leading scholars in organizational communication. So when I put the call out to people outside of those individuals that participated on the panel, and she responded, let's just say like scholar nerd activation <laughs> to the 10th level, because I was like, Dr. Fairhurst wants to be a part of my work. Like, like it, I think I probably would have blown a gasket had Brent, Dr. Brenda Allen contributed mm. to this work, even though like mm. her work isn't necessarily in, in like this media realm. It's uh, it's more so like black feminist thought, but I would have totally was just like lost it. But no, so I was extremely excited about, this chapter and more so um, it's the first chapter in the book and it's a part of the, the section on production of knowledge. And so I'm extremely excited about this chapter and the way that we learn about learning. And in particular, um, there's a section in there where the authors talk about ca- uh, collateral learning and how we use television to remain um, reflexive. We look at television as a way to understand like how to live life. But for me, this chapter was more so important. It was a tool to show educators how to use television to teach, right? And how to use television to teach about particular concepts that we use all the time in our communication studies courses. And so that was that was one of the the main reasons why I I love this chapter in addition to being a little like nerded out by the author but more so just a way that it's a toolkit for educators to look at and understand how to learn about leadership through television and it's an easy way to go to particular episodes where um the authors specifically talk about various leadership tenets and theories to look at and understand and how television shows um, have looked at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just kept thinking, man, how much I would have loved to have been in this class. Like this sounds like the kind of class you take and your whole life gets changed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I really, this is one of those things too. So what this is, is it's sort of like a combination of a, of a findings from a lesson plan and then also a description of the lesson plan. So for those listening, this is the very first chapter of the book. And it really is a great opening chapter to set the stage for just how powerful these leadership portrayals are and that they don't always come the way you think they're going to. So they're not always like a leader of a corporation who is standing in a TV show like Scandal and being like, I am a leader, right? Leadership is a practice and it's divergent and it looks different. And even when you see leadership from people of color and LGBTQ folks and women, the students are putting their own expectations and assumptions on those in some ways, not letting the the media push back. So it was a really fascinating look at the way those, I think, identity assumptions get mixed in, which which makes sense because then the second part of the book moves on to presentation of identity and how identity issues get wrapped up in how we're able to see leaders and how the media is willing to let us see leaders, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a great chapter here on Angela Rye, uh, Boy Bye, by Lauren Saxon Coleman. Do you want to talk about that chapter a bit? Because I think we decided that's sort of the the one we want to highlight from this section. Yes, that's fine. So um, the first chapter in the second section, Presentation of Identity, is called Boy Bye. 
Um, a textual analysis of Angela Rye and the politics of representation of black women in cable television news. And so this chapter, to me, I would say is very important when we think about the historical context of black women in representation in television. When we think about Angela Rye also as this um I want to make sure I articulate her identity and her importance to the culture um, in a very respectful manner. But Angela Rye is is an important thought leader, is an important voice for Black women on television. I love her candor in a I'm a tell it like it is type manner. Angela Rye, she was a she, she, she's just she's phenomenal in in many ways and she she shares a lot about her background and her history as being an activist all her life and how she's been able to translate that to being a media uh, scholar and a media analyst and so in this particular chapter it talks about how rye was reacting to a donald trump supporter And basically, she said, boy, bye, which is in many ways such a powerful statement. And it goes against the way that we traditionally see media commentators talk to one another on the screen. Um, Her nonverbal communication throughout that entire media clip, which is now known as the rye roll, like instead of I, it's the rye roll. Um, and, and she, she talks and she's so unapologetic about basically saying, I'm a black woman. This is what I have to say. You don't have to agree with me, but you will not disrespect me. And I think that that is so important, especially in the political climate that we are living in, to not have yes men and women and to have people of color, in particular black women, brave enough, unapologetic to say, this is what I think. This is how I feel. This is what's happening to black and brown people. This is what this presidency is doing to black and brown people. And, and, And being bold and confident enough in saying that. Well, and I think, and she, and she actually won a BET clapback award <laughs> for this move, which uh, is very, was very cool. Uh, but, and I think it's really important here too, like, like there's always this pushback. I think not, you know, not only against women of color who get it really badly, but just women in general for whenever you try to go pop culture in the way that you handle things, mm-hmm. it's like sort of like demeaning or it's less intelligent, but the context here is that, so essentially for anyone who doesn't know about this moment, it's 2016. And Trump's, uh, who's now Trump's former campaign manager, this this person Corey uh, Lewandowski, right? Right. Um, essentially, was was he and Trump were demanding to see Obama's acceptance letters from Harvard, right? As like a campaign ploy, and and I mean, like it's so offensive and just demeaning to ask the president of the United States to prove that he did well in college. And so I think the kind of And I think this like it's a Beyonce line. Right. I I don't think it only shows that she's bold and I'll apologetic. I think she is meeting the preposterousness of a request for Obama to have to like show documents eight years after he's been president. And so this like kind of dismissive, this isn't even worth like this is worth this kind of comment. I thought was a really bold rhetorical choice on her part that I really applauded, not only because it's sassy, 
because it, she met the level of respect that they had for Obama with the level of respect that she was willing to show them. Right. And more importantly, she, um, through her rye roll and through her comment of boy by, she was more so challenging like the mainstream news yeah. standards. Yeah. Yep. And so yep. that's what, that's what people have an, a hard time dealing with black women is because we challenge, we push back. And yeah. um, many times people are say, well, you're just angry. And it's like, hell yes, I'm angry. Like, do you see <laughs> how black people, black and brown people are being treated in America? Like you should be angry too. Right. So we have this president who has done so much for the country and you're coming here to basically try to go back and take away everything that he has earned on his own merit. And so it's like, yes, I am going to unapologetically challenge you on this. Well, and of course, and that was 2016 and she got a bunch of shit for her decorum. And now four years later, looking back, I mean, compared to the level of political discourse now we're seeing out of the White House, she's downright civil. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah, this is a great chapter. And I think um, it was written, obviously, like probably like this, this book was probably finished, written in 2017. So it, it, this book, this chapter especially, I think, holds up really well over time, because I think the last couple of years since the book was finalized, this chapter has only gotten more and more correct. In its correct. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The author of this, um, Dr. Lauren Coleman, was ahead or is ahead of her time. Yeah, I love Lauren. I really was excited to see this chapter in the book. Um, so this was a yeah, fabulous. So again, men, one, we're not going to be able to hit all the chapters. So we're just hitting the highlights for the people listening. But this is a book. And I also want to say something quickly about the writing of this book. I know there's we have a lot of New Books Network's listeners who are not academics, right? They come here for the ideas. They come here to see what the cutting edge kind of research is happening. This book reads tight. It mm-hmm. is a fast read. It is a quality read. It does not drone on and on. It clearly like has a lot of respect for its readers and it wants to have a lot of punch on its subject matter. And this book really felt snappy. And I had a really great time reading it precisely because it ends right at the point where I still want more. So right. every chapter rolled into the next chapter. And I, I don't know if that's your editing or if that's the writing of the authors or both, but it was a, a great read. I think it was, well, I don't think, I know it was both. I was very <laughs> fortunate for this to be my first, um, my first book, my first edited collection. And it all just, it just went together so well, right? So I, I applaud every person that contributed to this piece, everyone that, um, that helped me along the way with trying to figure out how to edit a collection, which, which is challenging in itself because you, as the editor, you have a story that you want to tell, right. but you also want to be able to hear other authors and provide other authors with an opportunity to tell their story as well. And so it's a delicate balance of what works and doesn't work because there were some chapters that could not be included sure. in this because they didn't fall within the theme of the book. Um, and then for me as the editors, and, and more importantly, it's about representation, presentation, power, and production. And so for some of the, the chapters that I received that were not as, I, I need my readers to be pushed, right? And so if yes, yes. you didn't push a reader to think more about themselves, because I never want anyone to watch television as a passive actor or a passive actress right and because that's not what you should be doing when you're you're watching television you need to think about 
television as an overall engagement of how you see yourself and how the world sees you. And so if a, if a chapter didn't do that, it was not included in, um, in the final production. Well, and, and it shows cause the, the, the chapters you did include, it's clear there are no filler here. It's clear that this is the, the cream of the crop. And also, yeah, I do like that because I mean, a book like this really, I think there's this, I think there's this misconception among a lot of people. I'm sure you see it in your students that if you, if you critically analyze your television, you can't enjoy it, that it no longer becomes this passive consumption, feel good activity. And I think what's awesome about this is that the shows that I enjoyed, I in some ways enjoy more now because of the critical thinking that I'm forced to engage in in this book. I think there's a chapter here on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I thought a lot about Brooklyn Nine-Nine because I watch it a lot. And it was one of those first of those quirky office sitcoms to engage issues of race and LGBTQ issues in a way that the the office and Parks and Rec just did not. Right. Uh, and, and I don't enjoy it any less now. I still, you know, I, I enjoy it more now because I kind of feel exactly like you said, I'm now an active participant in the construction of, of meaning in this show. And that's, I think, something that this book can do for many people. And it may also introduce you to some new media that you hadn't even considered yet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Some shows and some and some stories and some narratives. And I think television also provides us with an opportunity to see the way that other people live or potentially live and and just how everyone is so different. You know, there, we are all such complex human beings, despite, you know, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your, or your gender um, or your sexuality or your religious preference or your socioeconomic status. We're, we're all so different. And I'm appreciative that now in 2020, we're able to see so many different stories come you know, like come to light, but also how in many of these different stories, there is still a bit of commonality amongst what we're experiencing through the lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a fabulous book. I don't know if you want to comment anything else on the book, but we are about out of time because I know you have a lot of things happening right now. So we could talk a little more about the book or you could tell us maybe, I know you're involved with a lot of some of the the activism that's happening right now around, um, about media events, do you do you want to maybe speak a little bit to that so the listeners at home can know kind of what's going on in current affairs? Um, sure. I, okay. you know, I'm, I'm I'm hesitant, and I was hesitant if the if the reader, I mean, the listeners can hear this. It's a lot going on in the country right now, and so you're you're right. I do have to jump off the call because I'm about to um, go on our local Fox station to discuss what's happening in Minneapolis. Minnesota, and more so what's happening around the world with the public lynchings of Black men and Black women, and more so the response to these public lynchings and how individuals feel, um, how they're able to express and articulate their message. And I, you know, I think about my work with this book, it's leadership through the lens and how I am able to serve as a leader through my scholar activism by sharing what's happening. What are we seeing on television? How does it relate to theory? How does it relate to us understanding people as humans? Because what we're seeing as Americans is a way for people to cry out. Um, and a way for people to express what's happening, and we we see that through we see that through the through the lens um, 
every single time we turn on the television, right? Um, and we can even think about our, our social media as a lens and how we think about the way that the messages that we share in our various um, maybe Instagram accounts, Facebook, TikToks, how important those are as well. And so we can think about the fact that this morning, like journalist, CNN journalist Omar Jimenez was arrested on television while he was reporting about the riots. And this is a, um, even though his last name is Jimenez, he's a black man. And right down the street, same block, there's a white man that is reporting just like Omar Jimenez and he's not arrested. And so we see racism, classism um, at play live on television, right? This man is just doing his job, just like his white counterpart. And they're both live on television and he's doing absolutely nothing wrong. And so for me, this is allowing the America to face the harsh realities of dealing with um, injustices towards people of color. And well, so that, that's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say thank you so much for doing that work. And and also, you know, that public lynching, right? I think one of the things that that you're so talented at is providing language for people to think about things. It's one of the th- one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show. And a lot of people don't have the language of public lynching to describe what's happening. They call it police violence. They call it uh, media protests. They call it all kinds of stuff. But that's the term that that encompasses what's going on. Yes. And so that's a valuable contribution right there to give people language to describe what they're seeing, not just to see it, but also to know how to talk about it. Right. Um, And to let people know it's okay to talk about it. Um, It's okay. Like, don't. And and something I've been, you know, sharing with my friends and my colleagues, like, don't pretend that there isn't turmoil going on in the country right now. Like, that's the worst thing that you can do is to pretend that nothing is happening, right? So I know and I understand that these topics are, are very heavy. I um, I enjoy a daily glass of champagne to get <laughs> what I am experiencing right now. And I'm not advocating for, um, for, for drinking as a coping mechanism. That's just what I'm doing in this very moment. But I, I for me, it's just like, don't ignore what's happening, right? Um, allow this this moment in history, which your children, your grandchildren will indeed read about in the history books, allow this teachable moment, you know, for you to, you to learn about it, you to be uncomfortable, you to sit in your uncomfortable moments. You know, if I can reflect back on, on Olivia Pope and Scandal and, and many of the other shows that are discussed in the book, there are some uncomfortable moments that we see being played out on television, the rye roll was extremely uncomfortable. Um, in another in a, a chapter, we didn't get a chance to talk about with doctors Kristen Cole um, and Alex Pulios. They talked about this chapter. It's called "Pin Down by Profit: Managing the Branded Body in Total Divas," and they were actually on the original um, panel back at Western States. And I remember sitting there. What, like listening to them talk and I and I had only seen Total Divas um, a couple of times and it's a show about WWE women wrestlers and I just remember the way that they articulated how we view the body of a woman on television and how her body is powerful in this male dominated society like just having to sit there in that feeling of 
being uncomfortable at the way that women's bodies are portrayed on television. And that wasn't fun, you know, as a woman, that wasn't fun for me. And so I tell people in this moment in history, it's not fun. It's uncomfortable, but sit in your uncomfortableness, right? And understand, write, journal, talk to people to figure out why you're uncomfortable, but more importantly, listen to people, right? Because you're uncomfortable and you you can't explain to somebody how they should feel. Yeah. You, you allow them to be uncomfortable and to, and to educate you a little bit on what's happening. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, th- this was a wonderful interview. I don't want to make you late. I will look forward to you posting, hopefully, the link to the Fox interview on your social media and keep an eye out for that. And thank you again for joining us. I'm going to let you go and I will do a quick outro to let folks know where to find the book again and just repeat some of the themes from today. Okay, great. Thank you so much for listening. It was a pleasure today to talk to Dr. Krishima R. Murray, the editor and partial author of the book Leadership Through the Lens, Interrogating Production, Presentation, and Power, published by Lexington Books in 2018. I encourage you to grab a copy of the book and also look for other work by Dr. Murray, especially some of her public scholar activism that she mentioned today on the show. In addition, please be sure that if you're not interested in uh, getting a copy of the book for yourself, then maybe you consider picking up a hard copy and sending it out to your local library as a donation so that other people can read this important work. Or um, finances being what they are for some people, you can always ask the library uh, if you can fill out a request form. That can be the public library or your university library if you have one and ask them if they would grab a copy of the book to keep on the shelf so that people can enjoy this material that, even though it's uh, published in 2018, it's about the kinds of media television events that we are going to be talking about for decades to come and that may or may not make a difference in how we think about public life. Thank you for listening to New Books in Media and Communications. I'm your host, Lee Pierce. Connect with me on social media at Rhetoric Lee. That's Rhetoric Lee, R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C Lee. And check the show notes for links to connect to myself and the authors on the social medias and the internets and everywhere else that we are uh, espousing our opinions that no one wants to hear. All right. Take care and take care of each other. Bye-bye.